Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books in Science Fiction. I'm going to call this edition the short way to a happy author interview episode. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe. And last I checked, I was also a human being who happens to be ready to talk about aliens, wormholes, space operas, and the creative process with author Becky Chambers. Becky is the author of the Wayfarer series, The first book, The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, was shortlisted for a bunch of awards, including the Kitschies, a British Fantasy Award, and the Arthur C. Clarke Award. And her second book, A Closed and Common Orbit, was nominated this year for a Hugo for Best Novel and won the Prix Julia Ferlanger, which is kind of like a French Nebula Award. In other words, Becky's first two books have been basically home runs, and I am thrilled to welcome her to the show. Yeah, Thank you very much. I'm very excited to be here. I'm very excited to have you. And so let's just dive in. Uh, your first book, The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, is what some people call a space opera, but it doesn't have a lot of the usual ingredients. There's no threat to civilization, and there's no big battles or larger-than-life heroes. It's really about relationships, specifically the relationships among the nine person, I should say the nine being multi-species crew of a spaceship that builds wormholes. And I was wondering if that had been your intention from the outset to, to reframe the space opera to focus less on things like war and more on friendship and relationships. Yeah, absolutely. So um, space opera is... You know, that's what I grew up with. I grew up with Star Trek and Star Wars and devouring my way through the uh, the science fiction bookshelf at the library, you know. And so uh, those those big larger than life futures, I, that's something I've I've always been in love with. Um but when I was a kid and, and even, uh, you know, still now, um, you know, I never related to the to the heroes, to the chosen ones. You know, I I didn't see myself in their shoes. Um, the people I was really interested in were the people in the background. Um, you know, when you'd have these great, um, you know, spaceport scenes or, or you know, most Eisley or, um, you know, anytime you dock somewhere and there's all sorts of people and aliens walking around, you know, those people are just people living their lives. They're just the people, you know, going around doing their shopping, worrying about their day. And I was really curious as to what life was like for them. You know, what is it like to be just you and me in one of those fantastic futures? So what I did for these books is I I built the scaffolding for a space opera, but then I flipped the camera around. You know, you have these things going on in the background. There is mention of war and political machinations and these big, um, you know, multi-planetary empires and, you know, warring species and all of these things. But but our guys are just passing through. You know, they hear about this stuff on the news 
and then they go about their day. And that's how most of us are. You know, most of us are not the ones calling the shots in wars. Most of us are not the ones, you know, out to save civilization. Most of us are, you know, just kind of coasting along with, with, you know, everything else that's going on. So, um, that was, that was my intent with these books was to create space opera ish, you know, it's, it's a space opera, but it's one that, I and, and hopefully the reader feel like we could be a part of as well. Exactly. I think your books are very relatable for that reason. It's much easier to imagine myself with an ordinary job on a spaceship rather than heroically fighting some kind of battle or solving some complex Rubik's Cube problem to save the whole universe. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I, I think that's... Um, there's this perception both in in fiction and in reality that space and and you know being someone who goes to space means you have to um you know be this this very advanced sort of person right you have to you know in fiction we talk about chosen ones and we talk about um you know rebel heroes and and you know princesses and whatnot these very extraordinary people and here on earth um you know only a, a, a tiny handful of us have gone to space and those people have all been extraordinary um you know whether they were chosen for um you know their their military records or you know late nowadays we're looking for people with um very impressive intellectual or or scholarly records and you know soon it's going to be with um you know the advent of space tourism it's going to be the 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 extremely wealthy right these are um people who are not like everyone else. So bo in, in both contexts, both fiction and in, in reality, um, space is this realm of the elite. And I, I wanted to turn that around because we all belong to the universe equally. We all belong um, out there and we all deserve a part of it. And I don't think we should think of it as a place that only belongs to some. You know, So for that, you need to be able to feel like it's home to you too, you know, even if it is a spaceship going to these wonderful places, it's it's still something an ordinary person can access. There's hard science, science fiction, but I think of your books more like hard anthropology science fiction. In both your books, but especially in The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, you introduce all kinds of original species and cultures. Can you talk a little bit about some of your favorite species and how you go about building diverse biologies, cultures, and histories for your non-human characters from the ground up? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, building species is one of my, my very favorite things. It's something I can very easily um, get lost in the weeds about. So it's, <laughs> it's something I always have to, you know, remind myself that I'm not writing, um, you know, the Encyclopedia Galactica, that I'm, I'm, I'm actually writing a book. Um, I mean, favorites, I would say, um, I mean, the first, the first species I created for the series are the Andrisks, this reptilian race, and actually everything else kind of snowballed from them just because I liked them so much. I needed, I needed a book to put them in. Um, and we, you know, I can use them as sort of a, a an example of, of how I go about it. You know, I started with a very basic idea, which is, um, you know, I, I wanted um, a, a bipedal species that shed skin because I, I had heard that idea elsewhere, and I was like, huh, what would that look like? And the thing is that one little detail, they shed skin. Okay, so they're reptilian. We're going to we're going to assume or something very akin to it. Um, 
what what does that change? You know, what 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 if if you have a species that can't control their own body temperature, how does that affect their technology? How does that affect their homes? How does that affect their clothing? Do they wear clothing? You know, do they go out at night? Um, how does it affect the kinds of things they eat because their metabolism is going to be different? So, do they have a food culture or not? Um, if they don't give live birth, if they lay eggs, if uh, procreation is something you know where you where you expel this object and then just can leave it. How does that change your idea of what family is or what parenthood is? Or you know, um, do you have the same sort of connection to a child that say you know a human mother might if this you know if you have this thing growing inside of you for the better part of a year and then you have to hang on to it for two years? What, how is it different if it's separate from you and can walk the minute it hatches? You know, what does that change about their notions of 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 everything really? And then how do those things when you start with home and clothing and food? and family, how does that expand to the greater culture as a whole? What's their government like? What's their, you know, mainstream society like? Um, so, you know, you I tend to start with biology or start with something very simple, you know, home, food, um, family. And then from there, you just, you know, it just expands and expands and expands because there's, there's no end to those questions, you know, and, and um, I find them so much fun to tease out. And there are quite a number of very different species on the Wayfarer spaceship. I wanted to ask a little bit about Dr. Chef, who is a species called the Grum, or a Grum. Yes, a a Grum singular. There you go. Mm -hmm. And he's one of the last representatives of his species. And I thought it was fascinating that, as you described it, his species basically decided to let themselves go extinct because they'd made such a mess of their civilization. Yeah, I'm fascinated by the concept of extinction, this idea that at some point there is the last of something. You know, I don't know. I don't know really where that comes from. I don't know if it comes from me being obsessed with dinosaurs as a kid or just sort of being interested in evolution in general. But this idea that, it's, you know, if something's going to go extinct, there is a period in which you only have one left. And obviously there are others besides Dr. Chef, but they're so scattered that he, you know, he hasn't seen any of his kind in a, in a very long time. And I, I've thought about what that would be like to know that that, you know, you're the last of your kind. And, you know, the, the thought of it at first gives you all this sort of existential dread and, and you know, it's very scary. Um, but I, I, I wanted to toy with the idea of a species that had um, made peace with it, you know, that had almost, almost like um, someone with a terminal illness making peace with the fact that they're going to die and being okay with that and not trying to cling on to what they had, but instead trying to, you know, just live their best life. I, I wanted to see what that looked like on a, on a species level rather than an individual level. Um, and also just because Dr. Chef is such a, a warm, caring character, um, I, I thought it was, you know, to me, writing him, it was interesting to have this person who's just, you know, he's there and he's everybody's buddy and he's the one you want to go have tea with when you've had a bad day. Um, but he does have this this really horrible past that he, um, you know, kind of keeps under, not, not keeps under wraps, but that he's he's learned to live alongside. And I that's you know, one of the the overarching themes of, of both books is that, you know, life isn't um, isn't easy, you know, and sometimes things come to an end, be it, you know, you yourself or your species. Um, but you can make the best of it with the people you find along the way. And, and that's that's what I was trying to do with him. 
Well, now that I hear you talk about him, it makes me just think of human beings who you can meet a person as an individual who's wonderful and, of course, you know, the people in our lives whom we love, and yet we know human beings are also capable as a species of doing such horrible, cruel things. And I guess Dr. Sheff embodies both those things. Yeah, I mean, ultimately with these books, I want the reader to come away with a sense of hope. But the thing of, of you know, a sense that, that the future is is okay, that we that the future is a good place that that we can we can get to if we work together. But the thing about writing about hope is that you means you also have to write about fear and you have to write about pain because if only you're writing about how great everything is, um, that's just sugarcoating, you know. And so if you really want things to feel, you know, like there's a light at the end of the tunnel, you have to explore the tunnel. You know, and Dr. Chef is, is one of the examples of that. So maybe we could talk for a second about Ohan, who interestingly is uh, what you describe as a plural entity. So he's referred to with the pronoun they and them. And in order for him to perform his function on the ship, which is really to see in a multidimensional way and guide the ship as it's creating these wormholes, he has to be infected with a virus. And that's really a culturally accepted evolution for him. But just the idea that he has this symbiosis with the virus to reach his peak performance, and it's such an essential part of him, I thought was a fascinating idea. And it, of course, as science fiction often does, and always does really, made me think of humans and how you know, we have all kinds of bacteria that we need to survive that we don't fully appreciate, of course, because we don't even know all of the different positive bacteria that, that help sustain us. But I thought it was a, a fascinating attribute. Yeah, that idea of, of symbiosis on a, on a microscopic scale is, is what um, inspired me to, to create his species. Um, and, and also the idea that culturally for his species, as you mentioned, they consider the virus to be a, 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 an equal entity, you know, a, a, a partner. He is a pair. And... Um, you know, I, I, I thought that was just a little bit different than the we, way we see it, you know, where bacteria are sort of this weird background thing, but we don't really think of them as having their own autonomy or their own, um, you know, sort of life. We don't recognize them as, as, their, as, as, as being as important as we are. And so um, for him, initially, I was going to go with bacteria, but um, I was talking to my mom. My mom is my uh, my science consultant. She teaches astrobiology, and uh, I was describing to her um, very early on this 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 species. And I said, you know, I I want something that's going to change his brain function. And she said, well, if you want to do that, then I would go with a virus over over bacteria. And we talked a bit about why, and that's a <laughs> lengthy conversation. But you know, the the, the long and the short of it is that I mean we humans and, and count, you know, probably every other species are made up of a host of viruses that we've absorbed over the years that have changed the way we, um, we operate basically. And, um, you know, viruses, um, are a, a very effective way of, of, if, you, you know, if, in, basically, if you, if you want to change someone's brain, virus is a, is a fairly easy way to go, <laughs> a relatively easy way to go. So, um, but it, yeah, that's the idea of, um, life being important and, and, and being something that, that you can recognize even if it's something you can't see. I love how humans are not the center of the story. And in fact, in the 
the universe that you've created and the government, the governing body, humans are basically a new addition. They've only been recently accepted into that government, and they're considered a fairly minor member of this milieu. And I wondered how your humans evolved to become so humble. I think we needed to in order to survive that long. Um, Carl Sagan is a, is a big influence of mine, and I very much ascri- uh, ascribe to his um, sort of core tenet, which is that we are wonderful and you, we are unique, but we are not significant. And I think a lot of not to boil it down too much, but I think a lot of our our problems and our hangups here in the real world um, do center around this idea that that we are um, important, that we are superior, that we are the the only species on this planet that matters. You know, you can see that in the way we, um, we treat the environment, even in the way we treat other people, you know, you have this notion of, of superior culture, superior races, superior, you know, like whatever your group is, we're better than everyone else. And it causes um, immeasurable pain and suffering. And so I think that if, if we were to survive as a, as a species, if we were to get out there into the galaxy, we would have to eat an enormous piece of humble pie. We would have to say, we're not um, immortal. We're not, um, you know, the end-all, be-all of of the universe or of evolution or whatever it is. You know, we are this one instance of it. And so, um, to reflect that, I, I built a, I built a, a society in which, you know, we're just getting started, and not in a way where we're going to take over. You know, not in a competitive sort of way, but in a we have to we have to own who we are and, and work with these people and just accept that we're part of something bigger than ourselves. Let's talk a little bit about A Closed in Common Orbit. That's your second book, and it's not really a sequel. It's more like a spinoff. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the story and how you decided to create it, and you brought in two characters who were in The Long Way to a Small, Angry Planet, but they were relatively smaller characters, I guess, or maybe that's not the right way to characterize it, but they were like co-characters, and you gave them the, the full stage in A Closed and Common Orbit. Yeah, no, I think it's entirely fair to say that they were smaller characters in the first book. I mean, um, one of them we only see for a few minutes. The other one, you know, comes up very briefly twice. Um, When I was first asked um, by my publisher if I was interested in doing a sequel to The Long Way, um, I immediately knew that I didn't want to do another book with the same crew, at least not right now. I don't – I didn't want to force it. You know, I didn't want to just – try and milk it for all it was worth just for the sake of having the long way too. you know, it would have, it would have felt hollow. Um, so, you know, if I ever come up with a, another story about those folks, I'd be happy to tackle it. But right, right now I was like, you know, I'd, I'd like to go explore other places in the galaxy. You know, there's, there's so many things, so many directions I could go with this setting that I didn't want to be um, just stuck in one groove. Um, so the, the one that did come to me is I was like, well, I'm not going to go with these guys, but I, I would be interested to see where these two characters went at the end of this, uh, uh, end of the first book. Um, 
and the characters we're dealing with are uh, uh, Pepper, who is a, a, a mechanic of sorts, um, and she's um, and this is not a spoiler; it's it's mentioned in her story is outlined in the in the first book, but delved into in the second. Um, she's a uh, she was a slave as a child. She's from a, a planet that was uh, is a, a human settled planet that is estranged from the the galactic uh, community at large. And um, she lived in a factory as a child, and um, you know eventually escaped and made her way to to um, you know <laughs> where everybody else is. And um, then the the other character is um, uh, an artificial intelligence, and I can't say too much about her without spoiling the first book. But um, but she is an artificial intelligence um, who is um, has recently been installed in a in a body, uh, you know, a a passing human body, um, which is very illegal, um, and so she is in 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 Pepper's care, and so the story goes back and forth between this artificial intelligence coming to terms with um, her new reality and um, and then it, it flashes back to to Pepper's past um, and it goes back and forth and back and forth and the stories get all tangled up together. It's nice that your publisher didn't pressure you or uh, try to influence you to say, oh, well, we need a sequel or something that you have the freedom to write, uh, choo- choose what you, you want to write about. Yeah, no, I, I am extraordinarily lucky um that i've been given the the freedom to 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 do what i like basically in this setting um you know i just finished or i'm just about to finish my my third book um you know that follows the close and common orbit uh this new one's called um record of a space-born few um and it too branches off in a different direction um it's the most human focused of the books so far and um i plan to write a couple more as well and those as well will be you know different things um in different directions. So I'm, I'm very happy to have been given the opportunity to do that. I just wanted to talk a little bit more about Pepper for a moment. You alternate chapters between Pepper and then the artificial intelligence. And it's sort of like two coming-of-age stories. You know, you're learning about each of them and their pivotal moments as they come into their own consciousness and their own identities. But what's really fascinating about Pepper is that she is raised, in fact, by an artificial intelligence and then turns around and is able to see the humanity in this other artificial intelligence. And I thought that was just a great idea. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how this idea evolved of creating Pepper, who is reliant at some point in her life on the care of an artificial intelligence. It was actually a solution to a problem. <laughs> so I, I had um, Pepper's backstory, as I mentioned, is 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 um, laid out in in the long way. And so you have the story about this this little girl who escapes this factory and takes refuge in a in a junkyard, and um, lives in a derelict shuttle and spends her entire late childhood adolescence repairing the shuttle so that she can leave. Um, and she's not an adult until she does so. And um, When I went back, when I knew I was going to focus on Pepper and I was going to write about Pepper's past, I went back to the long way to see, you know, exactly what I had said, sort of what box I had built around myself in terms of what I could write with the second book. And uh, there was a, a timing issue, which was that she's only been in the Galactic Commons for 10 years, roughly. And I thought to myself, I was like, 
okay, if she's living by herself for, you know, for all that time for her, for her formative years, and she's only been here for a decade, she's not going, a a person like that who'd been alone that whole time, who'd had nobody to teach them how to uh, socialize, how to, how to be a person, um, would not be the sociable, um, extremely gregarious, very popular, very confident person we see in the long way. You know, Pepper, when we meet her, is is just very self-assured. And, and not to say that somebody, you know, who had gone through that sort of trauma wouldn't be able to make peace with themselves. But I found it, I was like, that that would be a different character. That would be someone different than, than who we're seeing here. Um, I, I feel like that character would be more damaged. Um, and not to say that Pepper doesn't have her own damage that she's carrying with her, but I thought we would, we would, she, she would be a little less socially functional, I felt. So um, I was like, okay, she needs to, she needs to know how to, you know, talk to people. She needs to know how to read. She needs to know all these things. And um, so I, I went back and forth and back and forth with it. And all of a sudden it was, the, the answer was so obvious. It was, well, there's an AI in the ship because ships have AIs. Let's say that the AI is still working. And not only does that solve the problem of, um, matching the pepper I'm going to write with the pepper that already exists in the first book, but it also explains why she's going out of her way, like really far out of her way to take care of this, this new AI um, who, who we meet in the, in the second book. Um, so it, it was one of the, those happy writing accidents where um, I had sort of, you know, written myself into a corner and then eventually realized that there was a, a doorway in the corner that I'd already built. It's so nice that you have so many friendly AIs. It's sort of something I think we're we're used to in science fiction that there's always a malevolent one. There's always a hell like AI around the corner who's ready to do evil and and yours are so nice. <laughs> well, I think you know, th- th- there, there's sort of two sides to that. In that, uh, we see some of that in in a close and common orbit with um, with Sidra, the the AI who is the other voice, um, the other perspective we see there in that, um, you know, she's programmed to be serviceable. She's programmed to be somebody, you know, to be somebody that um, you like to talk to. um, That's nice to have around. And she wrestles with that a lot through the book, trying to figure out um, what her, you know, authentic self is, who she is, you know, trying to separate herself, her, her soul, for lack of a better word, um, from her programming. And I feel like that's something all of us have to do, you know, how, how much of me is, is me, and how much of me is, you know, the things I was taught, how much of me is, you know, the, the things I've absorbed from society around me, um, you know, sort of a nature versus nurture thing. So, I mean, part of it with, with um, both Sidra and Owl is, is um you know someone made them that way but you could say that for any actual person as well which is why i think um at least in a fictional fictional context um ais and and humans aren't really that different there were two other things i was hoping to talk about before we wrap up you do a great job of presenting relationships in non-traditional ways for instance there are at least two sexual relationships across species in the long way. And I was wondering if the fact that you're gay has anything you think to do with your ability to write about less traditional relationships. And I ask this as a writer who happens to be gay myself. And I think, you know, it's important that fiction challenge 
notions of sexual identity and sexual expression. And so it was a question I wanted to ask you. Yeah, I I do think that, um, you know, I I can't help but write from a gay perspective. You know, I'm not here to um, write, you know, I didn't set out to be like, I'm going to write very gay science fiction, but (laughs) I can't help who I am. That's my perspective. And so, yes, I think a lot about um, the, the, the cultural norms we all take for granted you know i mean the thing is just within our own species and whether or not you're talking about same-sex relationships or gender roles or what marriage means or what a family looks like those are vastly different answers across cultures i mean you don't even have to leave our country to get different (laughs) answers on those but you know if you you can go you know half a world away and find something completely different than what you have at home and so it just seemed obvious to me that life in the galaxy physically would be as diverse as life here on our planet and so families and love and sex would be too and so I wanted to you know I wanted to explore that what are um, you know how have humans and other species dealt with the fact that you have aliens that you could you know some aliens that you are you are physically compatible with what what taboos have arisen around that you know we see a bit of that as well some species and some cultures are okay with you know members of different species um having sex or being romantically involved others are not and it and so that to me it felt very much like a um, a parallel to to where folks you, like you and me are here in Western culture, at least. You know, there's our society being sort of split down the middle on on that front, and um, and I think it just you know I wanted to highlight the the arbitrariness of it. You know that that these things are cultural values. They are constructs. You know, and um, constructs are important. Cultural values are important, but they are ultimately something we invent. Um, and so I, I think that's uh, that's as true in my books as it is in the real world. And the last thing I wanted to ask you about is uh, the unique way that your books have reached the public. You initially self-published The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, and you supported yourself, at least for the last phase of the writing, with a Kickstarter campaign. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit about how your book came to be eventually published by a traditional publishing house, and if you've picked up any insights along the way just about the business of publishing in general, and and I suppose particularly the business of publishing science fiction. Yeah, so I I consider myself very lucky for having experienced both both paths, I guess. Um, my my, how I went from self-publishing traditional publishing is a is a terrible story. If you're looking for advice on how to do it, the the very short version is, um, I met my editor at a party at Worldcon, and six months later she read my book. We have very different versions of how this went down, so I, I won't put anything on the record. But, um, but I mean that really was what it came down to was having a beer with the right person. Um, and not knowing that she was an editor. That's the other part of it is I was just at a party talking to someone and somehow that that changed my whole life. And that's, for me, the biggest takeaway of anything to do with publishing is that, yes, like on paper, you get an agent and you go, you, you know, go on submission and you query and you do all of these things. 
but it's not actually a formula. It's not something where if you do these steps, you will get published. It really has so much to do with um, putting yourself out there with um, who you meet, who you know. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, that's just true of, of getting jobs or, or doing anything, really. It, it has less to do with, with, you know, checking things off of your list than it does of, of just making connections. And so I would say, you know, regardless of whether you want to go the self-publishing route or the traditional publishing route, because I do think they both um, have their, their strengths and merits. I, I think it's really wonderful that people have so many different options now for getting their stories out there. I don't really prefer one over the other, um, you know, in, in sort of uh, conceptually, um, but even though they both have their strengths and merits and they are both, um, I think, equally valid choices for people who um, want to get their work out there. Um, the thing they both have in common is you need to put yourself out there, not just in terms of, you know, writing the book and having people reading it, but, you know, making connections, be it online or at conventions or whatever. Um, books don't get made alone. It's funny because writing a book is such a solitary business, but even in self-publishing, you need other folks in order for it to to get out there and and um, to be successful. So, um, honestly, that's that's the the biggest lesson I've learned about publishing is that um, it just it, a lot of it comes down to just uh, being nice, shaking hands, and and leaving yourself open to whatever might happen. And so, uh, you mentioned the third book. When is it coming out? And uh, do you want to say a little bit more about it? You said it focuses more on uh, human protagonists. Any any other clues? Yeah, sure. So the, the third book is Record of a Spaceborn Few, and it takes place in the Exodus fleet, which we've heard about in the other two books but haven't seen yet. Um, the Exodus fleet is this... Um, this gathering of, of uh, generation ships that carried the last um, the last Earthborn humans away from their planet, you know, generations and generations ago. This is very old history by now, and a lot of humans have settled on other planets and have um, you know integrated into alien societies. Um, but there are people still living on these ships. Um, Ashby, the captain in the first book, is is from there. He was born there, and um, I wanted to explore. Um, I wanted to explore that culture. I wanted to explore why they're still there. What, you know, what has made them remain on these ships when there is ground within reach, when any of them could leave at any time and and um, you know go set up a farm or you know go move into an alien city somewhere. Why are you staying on these old ships? And also just how um, this very old, very traditional culture not only has survived, but is changing in the face of alien contact. What has changed for them? What is continuing to change for them? Um, you know, how are they preserving their traditions? What are they willing to be more flexible about? Um, so it's it's really um, uh, just a, a sort of slice of life, an exploration of these people. Um, I have five protagonists, or not protagonists, but five points of view in, in this book, uh, five human points of view and, and one alien. And, um, they, you know, they're all coming at it from different directions. Um, and so it's, it's, I don't think I come to any hard and fast answers about the whys there, but, but I, I want the readers to draw their own conclusions. Well, I can't wait to get my hands on it. Thank you so much for being on New Books in Science Fiction. No, thank you for having me. It was great chatting with you. 
I've been speaking with Becky Chambers about the first two books in her Wayfarer series, The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet and A Closed and Common Orbit. And they're actually basically standalone novels. Check out the Science Fiction Channel at newbooksnetwork.com or on iTunes or other podcasting services for other episodes of New Books and Science Fiction. Uh, I hope you like the show and you'll consider maybe leaving a review or giving us five stars to help other people find us. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron. The editor-in-chief of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe, and the editor is Leanne Wilson. You can find us on Twitter at New Books Sci-Fi or on Facebook at NB Science Fiction. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe, and you can look for me on Twitter at Rob Wolf Books or robwolf.net. Thanks for listening. <laughs>